Hello, my name is Julia Steyer, a contributor to Stage Raw, and welcome to Stages of Our City. Stage Raw is a Los Angeles-based theater discussion website that seeks to discover hidden theatrical gems and companies in the unexpected corners of our region. Join us for a conversation among Stage Raw critics about what they've seen in the area and sometimes beyond. From small black box theaters to large commercial venues, the critics of Stage Raw make it their mission to witness the wide range of stories that our theater makers are telling. Please welcome our moderator, founding editor Stephen Lee Morris. This is Stages of Our City. Julia Steyer and Sox Whitmore, welcome to Stages of Our City. Thank you for having us. Good to be back. Preview of what we're going to talk about. We have Hades Town at the Amundsen. We have Blues from Alabama Sky, which just closed at the Mark Taper Forum, though there's a reason to bring that up. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf at the Geffen, a death-defying escape at the Hudson, Bright Half-Life at the Road Theatre Company, and Three Tables presented by Padua Playwrights at the Zephyr Theatre. Let's start with Hades Town. You both saw it. I actually saw it twice. I saw it opening night because I'm obsessed with it. And then I went back a week later for CTG's free play, which is a free ticket for anyone 25 and under because I'm obsessed with this musical. I got to have a very different experience. Socks, I was sure you had opening night. They give us very nice seats. We're right up there in front. Like we get to see it all. Free play, I was in like the nosebleed balcony uh, seats, but I was just excited to share that. I'll throw it to Socks. It's a fantastic show. Uh, as I wrote in my written review available on the Stage Raw website, it absolutely lives up to the hype. I tried to stay away from the cast album before seeing the show because <laughs> this, like similar to shows like Hamilton and Come From Away, yeah. it's pretty yeah. much entirely sung through. And if you're familiar with the music, you already have a very good sense of what the show's about. So I tried to go in as blind as I possibly could and get it all from the onstage experience for my first my first time with the music and all. Give us a framing since we're not, we may not have your written review in front of us. Give us a framing of what the origins are. This is a, two myths colliding into a rock musical. Exactly. Hades Town, the myth, the musical is a combination of two pretty popular and well known myths from Greek mythology the tragic love story of Orpheus and Eurydice, about a musician who tries to rescue his lover from the underworld, and then also the complicated romance between Hades and Persephone, which is a story that was invented to explain the changing of seasons due to the goddess of nature spending time both in the underworld and above on Earth. And you just loved it. You just swooned over it. I've described your review uh, several times. It sounds like, Julia, you couldn't get enough of it either. I, I absolutely adore this musical. I, unlike Socks, I have this album memorized. And for me, that was something that I think added to my, my own excitement about it is that I was just super hyped. I know it super well. And something, though, that Socks said that I do agree with that can be hard. You were saying, like, you, you know, you very much know the story when you listen to the music a bunch. But you also get in your head about what it should sound like, you know, the the quote unquote should sound like, because you associate these specific actors with just their inflections, how long they hold certain notes. And, you know, so that becomes mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. how you know the music. And so something that I actually had to actively work to separate myself from was listening to this new cast 
who are phenomenal, but they did sing things differently. They sang, mm -hmm. you know, maybe that note went up, whereas in the cast album, it went down. Maybe they held it for three counts where I'm used to hearing it held for six counts. And so I had to actively remind myself, it's not that this person is doing a bad job. It's not that they're not doing it correctly. They're doing them. They are doing their own version of it. And um, that's something I do struggle with when you have something that's such a favorite. The biggest changes I noticed were in the Eurydices between, you know, what I've oh, come to know and this new one. This Eurydice did a, she kind of truncated a lot of the notes and I go back and forth. The second time around, I think I saw more chemistry between her and the Orpheus. That first, the first showing of it, it felt like there was, I mean, it was opening night. It felt like there were a lot of nerves. Um, and so that's actually why I was glad I got to see it a second time because it, everyone felt a little bit more lived in it. I mean, don't get me wrong, opening was still phenomenal, but it was that second time I actually did, I got to see a little bit more of the relationships. I kind of got to, it felt like everyone had taken a breath. Mm. And then and then showed up and did the show. Um, the, so, the open yeah. question is whether or not that was actually happening, and whether the the musical was evolving, or whether it was you had taken a breath, sing it the second time, and this was actually about about you. That is not the show. So that's, real. <laughs> that is, that's really hard to know. How do we yeah. how do we know what we think we know is true? Um, <laughs> it's, it's so interesting, actually, Julia, that you say Eurydice is where you notice the difference because I made a point of listening through the cast album after I had seen the onstage show. Like I said, kept myself clean of the cast <laughs> album as much as I could beforehand and then did my comparison afterwards. And I would say one of the biggest differences in casting for me was the Hades character. Yes. Because the person on the cast album has a very uniquely low voice. There are not many people who can sing the way that that actor can. Yeah. And so the person who played Hades on stage at Center Theater Group and as part of the North American tour did a fantastic job but it's not the same it's not comparable to the way that the broadway cast album sounds mm -hmm. yeah it's patrick page good. can sing more whoa 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 low i yeah mm -hmm. i feel you i just really appreciated that the onstage actor made the hades role their own even mm -hmm. though they had quite an iconic role to live up to because i would say that the hades low low true bass sound from the cast album is one of the things that made the show stand out when it was starting to gain acclaim is the fact it had this unique writing with this mm -hmm. low true bass and then also heavy use of falsetto yes yes um we'll get to this next question which is of accessibility in more detail when we we talk about the next play but i just have a very quick question for you julie you said you saw it in the both uh, as a press person and you were in coveted seats and then you saw it in the nosebleed section when you were there under the free tickets for people under 25. yes how different was that experience and do you feel like they're seeing a different show or not oh that's so interesting so well, one, I would say it was actually very generous of free play to give these tickets because they don't normally do the Amundsen. Normally, the free play from Center Theater Group is reserved solely for the Kirk Douglas and the Mark Taper because the Amundsen tends to be their more hot tickets. Um, so I was just very excited that they did it at all. I It did feel a little bit different only in terms of I could see the machinations of the stage and so things that were supposed to be a reveal or <laughs> things that were supposed to be like I, the one that sticks out to me the most is that there's this really really cool scene at the end where uh, orpheus and eurydice are walking back to um you know the world or the real world and the fates 
to have this like disappearing, reappearing thing. And it just like, it highlights the song. It's really cool. It's really creepy. Um, and they really feel like they come out of nowhere. When I was in the nosebleeds, I could see them moving. Mm-hmm. So it was it was mm-hmm. one of those things of like, it's still really cool. And I'm only noticing it because I know what it looked like from the orchestra level. And so I don't think I, if that was all I had seen. I don't think it would have bothered me. But I, I yeah, so maybe I, I refute what I said earlier. I don't feel like it's a different show. I just feel like it's a little less. Ooh, wow. If that makes sense. But it's only and it's only, like I said, it's only because I can see how everything is working, mm-hmm. which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just, you know, it takes away the element of surprise. Well, if <laughs> Hadestown had been written by Bertolt Brecht, that would have been oh, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yes. So, yes. <laughs> uh, that Whether or not that's an advantage or not is, is another of many open questions. Uh, you both saw Blues for an Alabama Sky, which closed at the taper. However, it is topical. So if you, we could just do a sort of a snapshot of uh, why you think this matters. Sky on May 7th, night before closing. And it was one of those things where I got an offer being familiar with the Center Theater Group communities that they were like, yeah, here's a, a code to come see the show. And I might not have thought to see it otherwise, but Center Theater Group, as always, is putting on fantastic productions. And I hadn't been to the Mark Taper Forum before. But as it turned out, this show had themes. It was very sex worker positive, which my partner and I super appreciated. It is an all black cast. It had uh, racial themes and queer themes that were very powerful. And most timely, it had sequences related to the topic of abortion. And there's no way that they could have known upon booking this show yeah. for that space that there would be political developments in the in the recent weeks. But as I was watching it and seeing this unfold on stage, I was really struck by how much how much more it hit, knowing what we were all thinking about right now. And I'll note that there were people who walked out of this show. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And and it's not even just the abortion stuff kind of comes in near the end, but the whole beginning is also just about, there's like one character who's really trying to work on family planning and even is even feeling pushback on that. And I totally agree with Socks. It was very much like, and this is set in the 1930s and it very much felt like, oh, nothing's changed. Or like we've, you know, we've made steps towards like autonomy over female bodies and we are reverting back to the 1930s. I, I saw it right when it opened. Um, and I also saw it as a part of free play. So this, none of this was even in the news yet. And I was actually thinking about Blues for an Alabama Sky because a friend had asked me if I wanted to come see it. And I was like, oh my gosh, it's fabulous. Like I've already seen it, but definitely go see it. And then I was thinking about it and I was like, oh my gosh, it's literally so timely. And I a hundred percent agree with Socks. Like that's the crazy thing about theater. Socks is so right. When they booked this show, it sh- they there's no way they could have known this would have been in the the news but i think it shows the power of theater to kind of create these snapshots of times in history where we're able to be like oh that's so crazy so that when our realities are now mirroring what we just dubbed as wow isn't that insane that that's how life was in the 1930s it's so crazy to watch the 1930s on stage and be like oh and here are all the parallels of right now mm-hmm. this is wild and so um yeah and it, and it's also something i really really like about the show is, uh, as Socks mentioned, it's an all black cast. And a lot of plays fall into that trope of making them like tragedies. But there was so much joy and so much black excellence. And so much, I mean, there was definitely tragic parts. 
but like the you know the main guy whose dream to go to paris he gets it at the end and i remember like watching there and feeling so uplifted at watching that and being like yes like they are they're not just using this as a way to like exploit tragedy in uh, communities of color Mm. exactly thank you yes exactly and so it was that's something that i really commend it for was the beautiful successes it highlighted Mm -hmm. had an interesting audience experience in this one i felt like the audience for the night that i saw it we were all on the same page we all responded vocally at the same moments oh wow events happening where we'd all be very excited or we'd all be very uh, apprehensive (laughs) Uh, and that's, it's not often you have an audience experience like yeah, that. Well, and the that's theater. the great thing about the live theater is that you do get to like, it validates your feelings as well too. Cause you're like, okay, I'm not the only one who loved that. Everyone else did. Or conversely, okay, I'm not the only one who was disturbed by that. So was everyone else. Yeah. yeah. There's a, so there's a, there's the a New York, there's a New Yorker cartoon about just that. And it's uh, the, the entire, it's just pans across an audience at a, at a theater and everybody yeah. is crying except oh. for one woman who's up yelling with joy with her hand back up and the caption is Mildred misses the point of yet another play. So uh, in terms of the <laughs> unity of response. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, Mildred. <laughs> poor Mildred. Uh, Virginia Woolf over at the Geffen. Yes. This I, is so mm. I am of the mind that if you need three and a half hours to tell a story, you should just get a TV show. Um, I am not a fan of long things. That I usually go into things that are more than two and a half hours, and I'm like, I don't know. I think this needs to be like a miniseries or something. But this production of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf at the Geffen Playhouse changed my mind on this. They succeeded. I felt that the three and a half hours really clicked by. It was so fast paced. You did not feel the fact that there were two intermissions because it's so long. Uh, The actors, there are four actors and they all did an excellent job of keeping the energy up and making sure that you never felt like things were dragging along. One thing in particular I wanted to make sure to highlight about this production is that the entire show was live captioned. Uh, It was not even like an optional thing where you needed to get special glasses to have the captions shown. There was just a screen off to the left of the stage that was doing the captions the entire time. And as someone myself, I have mild auditory processing difficulties. I watch everything film and television wise with closed captioning just because it makes me feel like I have a safety net for when things are hard to understand on the fly. And I so, so appreciated this. I haven't seen this in a theater since Sweetland at um, the industry, which was an opera production in the before times. It closed actually right around the time of COVID's uh, the stay-at-home orders onset. I haven't seen live captions that were just there since that show in 2020. Mm. Quick question on the other one that you had captions on. You mentioned it was an opera. Was it in English or was it it was. That was actually... Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, Sweetland is an all-English opera that happens to be about the indigenous peoples welcoming the colonists into North America. And it's about, you know, like early genocide and the way that that mm. unfolded. Mm-hmm. But it is all in English. And they made sure that the lyrics, the libretto was up, even though it was in English, which I really appreciated because normally we only put the lyrics up when it's a non-English yeah. piece. Yeah. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf plays at the, at the Geffen Playhouse through May 29th. Julia, you saw a deaf 
define escape um, that is playing at the Hudson Theater? She, her name is Judy Carter, and she is kind of one of the only well-known, actually, I would say famous female magicians. It was, it was interesting because I want to call it a one-person show because it had that vibe, <laughs> um, but there were actually two other actors in it, and that's not to knock them at all. It's just, it was the vibe of it. It was very, um, it was an autobiographical piece. It was uh, featuring Lindsay LaRose and Kevin Scott Allen, and they kind of came in as you know, as as if Judy was telling a story about her parents or her sister, they kind of came in and played all the ancillary characters very briefly. It, it wasn't a one person show, but it had the vibe. And I really enjoyed it. There was uh, she was kind of talking about her path from childhood till now in becoming a magician and kind of the things she had overcome. Um, and, you know, the biggest thing she said is, you know, like I overcame sexism in the world of magicians. Uh, I escaped from a bad family and I escaped from the closet because uh, she was she, uh, she was a lesbian kind of during a time when it was very like not accepted. Um, and so she was just talking about all the things that she had to overcome. And it was just fascinating. And she was talking about um, finding love later in life um, for a, with a woman about 30 years younger than her. There was magic in it um, as she was doing a lot of the her live uh, sets like on stage. It was really enjoyable. It was really uplifting. There were definitely times that were hard. Um, there was a lot of discussion of um, childhood abuse and her sister who had cerebral palsy kind of also faced a lot of she was dropped off at a home and basically abandoned by Judy's parents. So yeah, abandonment, abuse in, in the form of abandonment for sure. Um, and it was, you know, Judy was telling her story about how she worked to become successful enough to get her sister out of the home. Um, there was just a lot of it that was really, really moving. And um, I really appreciated the the storytelling of it, of, mm -hmm. of the, she was captivating enough as her own telling the story. I loved the magic. Like every time she brought that into, it just kind of gave it an extra layer of interest and um, spectacle and something to just kind of uh, watching somebody perform essentially a monologue for, you know, 90 minutes can be, it can be hard no matter how engaging it is. So it was nice that there were these moments of, ooh, ah, you know. There, there are other actors, in, are there not? There are, again, though, it was like they, you know, they would come in and say a couple lines and then leave. Um, that's why I say it. it had like the vibe of a one person mm -hmm. show. Mm -hmm. um, not again, not to say that they weren't great. They were, they were wonderful. But it definitely in terms of the, you know, it being an autobiographical piece, focusing around Judy and her life, it did have that vibe to it. But I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And it plays for May 15th, a death defying escape at the Hudson Theater. Socks, you were at the Road Theater Company where you saw a bright half-life. One of the things I so appreciate about working with Stage Raw is that it introduces me to theater I might have missed out on otherwise. Bright Half-Life has been running for a hot minute now and <laughs> you needed someone to go see it. And I'm so, so glad I did. I feel like all four of the shows I've seen recently have been such major successes. They've also dealt with some really complex and difficult topics. Uh, I mean, we were just talking about Blues for an Alabama Sky and Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which oddly enough, like both ad addressed alcohol use and failed pregnancies in different ways. And seeing them on the same day was a weird experience. And then when I saw um, 
Bright Half-Life, it was dealing with issues of, it's about these, these two women and the journey of their relationship with each other. They are queer women, but it's very non-linear and it, it bounces back and forth between the most joyful highlights of their love story and the pitfalls, the absolute darkest moments, the moments where they're having difficult conversations about intersectionality. It's a relationship between one black woman and one white woman. So they have a conversation about like, are you all of your identities simultaneously or does your race come before your queerness? They were having topics about child raising, um, before and after divorce. They were having conversations about losing a parent, having parents that were supportive versus non-supportive of their queer identities. All of these complexities that arose within their relationship. And the other shows that I happened to see, Hades Town, Blues for an Alabama Sky, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, all had these different complicated relationships occurring. It's been such an interesting moment in theater. I think there's a lot of great theater happening, especially right in this moment, and I'm lucky to have seen so much of it. But it's especially interesting to enjoy them all simultaneously and see how differently we can tell these stories, where Center Theater Group presents these massive productions with fabulous, large-scale production design. And then we can have really small, intimate theater like Bright Half-Life, where it's just two actors, two chairs, and a very simple set with lighting and sound design to carry it. Bright Half-Life at the Road Theater. And it's I think it's been extended into June, if, if memory serves. It took, they took a, a little time off and it's reopened. I was playing on, on, on restricted nights. That is still possible to see. Speaking of uh, chamber theater and this, the sense that nothing's changed, I saw a Murray Mednick's play Three Tables uh, presented by Padua Playwrights at the Zephyr Theater. Mednick is now... I don't know his exact age, but he's got to be in his mid middle 80s. And he's been writing about the end of the world since he was probably 40. But now you start to wonder if time hasn't actually caught up with him on that. He, I was thinking of the, the Yeats slouch, this, the, his poem Second Coming, uh, which Joni Mitchell turned into a song slouching towards Bethlehem, where the center cannot hold and things fall apart. That's kind of what he's talking about with, with eight characters writing. There are eight characters that are essentially reciting a kind of poem in Borscht Belt vernacular, if that makes any sense. It is word-centered. It is sound-centered, and it is a piece of music, and it's a poem. Those are its virtues, and somehow it gets to the ability of theater to tell an unfettered truth in a way that no essay can, no scientific journal can, no newspaper can. We look to all these sources for truth, and somehow poetry and music is possibly the inner sanctum of truth. And that's what his play gets at about how we got to the, the Holocaust, memories of the Holocaust, the ghosts of the Holocaust, the ghosts of history just hover over this play and hover over our planet. And speaking of nothing's changed, when we hear about the disinformation, the invasion of Ukraine and the Russians denying war crimes and the Holocaust deniers, and you just go, this abject cruelty just keeps rolling through. And now we're facing climate change, which is alluded to in the play. The thing about the play is nothing is explained in the play. There are simply characters who spout words and you get the meaning through the sounds and the snippets of words and how they intersect. It was beautifully performed with eight actors and it's directed by the playwright himself. 
that's three tables of uh, Murray Mednick at the presented by Padua Playwrights, where he has been since the 1990s, 1980s. I think he came to Los Angeles in 1974. He's earned his cynicism, let's put it that way. And by the way, it is kind of funny. It wasn't funny enough to laugh at, but I don't think these times are funny enough that we can laugh anymore. So um, I gave him, gave him credit. I, th I thought it was just fantastic. Sox Whitmore and Julia Steyer, thank you so much for joining us. Stages of Our City is produced by Julia Steyer, who we have with us. Thank you for that, too. <laughs> of course, of course. And uh, we will see you at the theater. And if we don't, we'll, you can listen to us next week at the <laughs> same time. Thank you so much, Stephen. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Thank you all for joining us today on this episode of Stages of Our City. To learn more about Stage Raw, or the Los Angeles theater scene, visit www.stageraw.com. And be sure to support us on Patreon so that we may continue to highlight the work of theater makers here in the City of Angels. I'm Julia Steyer, and this has been Stages of Our City. Till next time! <laughs>